going to introduce our featured reader as he finishes signing books. It's going to take me seven minutes, so. so yeah. John Brantingham, when he was five years old, his mom get, put him in ballet lessons. For seven years, he had ba ballet lessons and didn't know that there was words that can go to some music. But his ballet teacher one time didn't know John was waiting for his mom and put on some opera and he heard this music with words and it got him kind of excited. And then the very next year, he saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan and he said, words and music! And the words are what stuck with him. And that's what we're going to hear from John today. And if we're lucky, he might dance a little and, and <laughs> sing two or three of his songs. And whatever goes. But I'm so proud he's here. He has, I counted them, there's 45 books in here. He wrote each one by hand. And he sells them pretty cheap, like 40 bucks each. If you get a sign, he'll sell them to you for 20 bucks. So, uh, he did a book with Kendall Johnson. It's the first one I did with, with his writing in it. And then also, he did a book he's going to read to a, a bunch from us today, right? Yeah. Crossing the High Sierra. So, he's well known to most of us and he reads really well. He's going to slow down and read so we can understand him. And are you ready? Yeah. Okay. He doesn't have any nerves. He's going to come up and do it. You only know the real story. It's much worse. My mother, my mother made me take four years of mine because she was into clowns. Uh, <laughs> I think that's so cruel. Um, <laughs> okay, so I, I'm going to read for a variety of things. What? Sure. You have to start with the mime poem. Oh, no. No, I, I, I won't even mime for her. Uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read from a, a variety of things. I write uh, fiction and poetry and essays. I'm not going to read any essays because those are all really long. Uh, but I do a lot of flash fiction. Um, so I'll read some of that. And it, it, it's, I, 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 know, I feel kind of uncomfortable just doing a, a sort of reading. So we can make this into a conversation. And I, I'm going to kind of, if you want to, if you don't want to, uh, that's fine. I'm not going to force you. I'm not rich. Um, <laughs> so, uh, the, but what I read about is uh, uh, trying to find meaning and joy in life, right? What is that? And it, it has to do with nature. It has to do with uh, moving away from uh, depressing uh, incidents in your life, it has to do with a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and uh, the, I, I work with my students, uh, with uh, Viktor Frankl, uh, who I'm I, I, a great believer in, I don't know if you know Man's Search for Meaning, um, it's, uh, he lived through the Holocaust and wrote a book about how to live through the Holocaust, and it's fi finding meaning in your life. And I should say, I should rephrase that, I, I think that he's a great tool, uh, his, his logotherapy is a great tool. So um, that's what I'm generally looking for in my poetry and my writing. Um, Take a look at one. I don't want to read the stuff that I read last week. Uh, so I think I'll, maybe I'll start with the title poem, Crossing the High Sierra. And this is about, um, in part, about um, John Fremont and Kit Carson, who are awful, awful people in a lot of ways. Uh, just, just murderous people. Uh, Crossing the High Sierra. 
Annie and I crossed the high Sierra on foot, the way John Fremont did all those years ago. We have his grit, but resolved never to kill any prisoner taken in battle as the price of our ambition, even if we have no room. Annie is more interested in draw, drawing fallen leaves than making war anyway. She captures the emotion of this place in the high summer, the way it makes you turn inward, the way you get that church feeling, the one you always wished you'd found in Mass, when the priest would swing his mitre of incense. But you never did, and that was the reason you knew you had to leave it behind. In the evening, as the light is coming down, we look across the valley and spot Fremont's ghosts, crossing again for, for new territory and treasure. We decide right there that if we take prisoners in battle, we will treat them with dignity, even love. We will give every enlisted man the privileges others save only for officers. Their letters to their wives and children will be full of hope. They will, will resolve to fight no more. Okay, so that, that's, that's, what, that's why we spend our summers. It's, it's uh, just uh, absolutely fantastic. We live in, the, in Sequoia and Kings Canyon in, in a van. I am now aspiring to be the guy who lives in a van down by the river. Uh, and we, we, we write and hike and, and, and draw in hopes of finding mindfulness. And so if any, if you, uh, we teach classes in this too, so if you want to join us, they're free. Uh, we just, uh, and Cynthia was, was our professionals uh, class. And so we just kind of, it's the best thing ever, so please join us. Um, this is uh, Meditation on the Trail to Heather Lake, uh, and it's in three parts. And uh, I don't know if you know the studies that, that come out in the last 20 years, that if you don't have the word for blue, you can't see the color blue. Um, and it's, it's people who don't, don't gain this word can't see the color, and it's extraordinary. Um, and it's just something about the way our mind works. So I'm going to reference that. Meditation on the Trail to Heather Lake. One, I realized that when I left in the pre-dawn, I waved to my wife, and she smiled at me. But since she stood in the light, uh, in the light on the porch, and I sat in the dark in the, of the car, she doesn't know I waved. I realized that although I've lived her, with her for 20 years, there's much of Anne I don't know. I realized that I have total faith in gravity, but I have no idea how it works, and neither does anyone else. I wish I knew, because it would be a relief to have a break from it now and then. I tried to pretend to Anne one time that I knew what gravity was, gave a long technical explanation that made her laugh, because she was so surprised by me, had no idea what I was going to say, because there's so much of, of me that she doesn't know, an interior galaxy I keep in my secret Freudian space. Two, when I tell Anne my ideas, she says I'm one in a million, but in a world of seven billion, that means there are 7,000 out there just like me. <laughs> And I've never met anyone just like me. There's this big group of people out there, my tribe, and I will never know them, never meet them. They live in places I will never even imagine. They are as mysterious to me, more so even than Anne. They know things I will never hear of, see things I will never think of. I will be like those people who can't see blue because their language has no word for it. When they're shown color charts, they can't distinguish it simply because their parents never educated them. To them, the sea is green and the sky is white. Those 7,000 people out there who are just like me can probably see a color that I can't, and they could teach me the word for that shade halfway between purple and mud that I just see as brown, and I could teach them blue. But now, that will never happen because I'll never meet them, and anyway, their language is about to go extinct, so no one will know the color that's halfway between purple and mud. And in fact, that's the color of my eyes. That is, I decide the nature of everything. Three. Everything is mysterious to me and everyone else in the world, even this woman I love, 
Who knows? Maybe there's even a word for a hiatus from gravity, and if we knew it, we could turn somersaults in the blue sky. Maybe she doesn't even know the color of my eyes, and if she doesn't, I don't know how to explain it to her. When I get back this afternoon, maybe I'll ask her, and she'll smile and nod, hiding the fact that I'm mysterious to her too, and that's the fun of it. Maybe. And here's another one. I, I just I'm I'm gonna I'm talking about joy and, and finding joy and meaning. I might as well just keep re- reading about my wife. Uh, and <laughs> this is pandering to the crowd. <laughs> uh, this, this is called "That's You Cooling Your Feet in Heather Lake." That's you cooling your feet in Heather Lake after the long trudge up the mountain, and I'm in the shade thinking about the movies of my Sunday afternoon childhood on the family film festival. A cowboy up here in the high Sierra, Randolph Scott or Clint Eastwood. Some old cowboy you were supposed to love, but I never did. I got into this long, stupid argument with my buddy about John Wayne, who he thought was brave. And my point was that he went into every fight knowing that he was going to win. But his sidekicks always went forward knowing they were going to die. And slowly and painfully. Which is why they always had the sense to have a dying speech laid out. Not only were they going to sacrifice themselves, but they were going to leave those last words by God to the, for the good of humanity. My point was that my, my friend w- worshipped the wrong gods. My point was that if you wanted to see Christ in the high CR cinema, you had to look for some poor slob with a drinking par- problem and a month-old potato for a nose. The, the local widow woman won't love him, but that's all right, because the love that fills him for everyone is enough for this lifetime and the next. Uh, uh, looking down at, you, down at you there with your feet in the water, I wonder if I've been a good sidekick for you. I wonder what my last words will be after I jump in front of Jack Palance's bullet. I wonder if they will fill you with joy that blows the high Sierra breezes. Mm. I, read some of this. I, I, I really love this book, and I love the, love the way you put this together. Um, this is going to be another Sequoia po- poem. This is called The Dripping Season. This is the most hopeful poem I could think about for a nuclear war, which is what this whole thing was about. The dripping season. Last summer, you trudged to Alta Peak to watch the fire apocalypse the other side of the mountain. The whole forest burned at once, the smokes clinging to the trees, turning the valley below you into that scene from Revelation that none in Catholic school used to read specifically to you in front of the whole class. This place of your long childhood afternoon was just gone. It happens that way sometimes. Whole world's consumed in flames, except today is the second day of April, and you remember that this is the season when snow drips off trees and leaks into the mountains, turning the top world into a rich mud full of the ashes of last year's fire, and seeds and germs and bugs as well. Your ranger friend told you that morel mushrooms love the places of recent fire most, blooming from ash like a metaphor, straight out of ancient Catholic orthodoxy, or better, from an apocryphal text that disappeared 700 years ago. You dream of it now, the book that tells us what happens after Revelation, because time doesn't end, so there must be a tomorrow. You wish you had that in middle school to show the nun, who seemed so bent on the finality of endings. You wish you had it now. You wish you were in the high Sierra with your ranger friend who hikes at this time of year into the squished pleasant uh, forest barefooted, hunting mushrooms with a knife, a pan, butter, a portable stove, and that's all. She says she eats them right there, sitting cross-legged on a fallen tree, and watches the forest that has been consumed by fire rebuild itself. And she meditates on mushrooms, and where they might have hidden themselves, 
And if there is one that has lost itself under the log she sits on right now, in the dripping mud, mud of the season of real life. I want to read some, uh, little bit of just, uh, uh, short fiction. Um, this uh, a book just came out called uh, Finding Mr. Pembroke, and it's about, uh, if, you know, if you know Frankel, it's about basically achievement orientation, which is uh, when you are too focused on achievement and you start to forget everything else, and uh, one day you wake up and everything's terrible. And it's kind of a weird uh, blend of poetry and fiction. It's one long sentence. The book is one long sentence. So uh, I, I don't think the grammar's right, uh, but that's okay. Uh, this, I'm just going to start off with the first one, Mr. Pembroke. Mr. Pembroke, uh, Mr. Pembroke wakes up Monday morning and showers and shaves and dresses and fries two eggs and pours orange juice into his Los Angeles Lakers 2010 championship souvenir glass and watches the news until he realizes that 29 eager 16-year-olds are going to sit down in his physics class in 12 minutes and that school is eight minutes away if he goes through a couple of stop signs. But somehow that doesn't make him stand up and he wishes Regis were on, but Michael and Sarah's banter is pretty good, and he chuckles for 11 minutes and looks at his watch and can't take himself away from the kitchen television this morning, and that thought occupies a full minute, and then another, and then his phone rings, and it's the school, and he hasn't missed a single day, nor has he been late in 37 years. So the voice on the other end seems to believe him when he says that he's in bed, so sick that he slept through the alarm, and he makes a coughing laugh with the voice and says, you're right, that's no way for, the, for last year's Teacher of the Year to act. And he says he might be able to make it in tomorrow, even though he knows he's not going to be able to leave the kitchen. So he coughs again to start Tuesday's lie and hangs up wondering about retirement, whether he's built up enough and he laughs because whether he has or not, he's going to be retiring because he can't move and he wants to, but he can't after all this time of helping bright kids like it was a holy mission handed down to him on tablets. But Michael and Sarah on the television make him laugh, so he makes himself butter toast, which is his Sunday morning treat. And he laughs and nods and says to the television, tell them, Michael, and then he can't remember what it is that Michael said. Okay, so, so this one, uh, we're going to go fast forward. And so he, he takes a sabbatical from his job, and he's trying to find meaning and joy and hope and stuff and through dating and just kind of nature. This one's called Barking. Mr. Pembroke is sure that he's been awakened by barking, but when he walks out front in his bathrobe and slippers and stands just outside the pool of amber streetlight, there are no dogs, but just some kids down the street yelling and whooping. So the high school must have won the football game, and Mr. Pembroke smiles at that, not realizing at first that they're all coming in a group down the street, and he's just an old man in his bathrobe on his lawn late at night, but he still wants to feel their energy. So he takes two steps back and three to his right and squats down behind his hedge and listens to them coming past, laughing too loudly on purpose and talking too loudly on purpose. And one says, we're going to take state. And the other one says, fuck yeah. And, that was, and, and was there a time when Mr. Brooke, Pembroke thought that winning a football game mattered that much? And was there a time when Mr. Pembroke thought anything mattered that much? And Mr. Pembroke sits down to sink hip deep in mud but nothing truly matters, so he settles into the cool moisture, working its way through his robe, and he watches the stars above him, so many that have been blotted out by the lights burning off the football field, and he has the daydream that the stars are making music that he can't hear, and every joyful noise in heaven and earth just sounds like barking to men of a certain age.
I just, this is, uh, I work in collaboration a lot. Um, this is a collaborative thing. And the reason I work in collaboration is I'd like to get uh, away from ego. Uh, and uh, that, that's, where, that's where your joy is going to live. And, and uh, it teaches me new things. It teaches me to see this. I wrote this with Grant Heyer. Uh, he's, a, he's a poet. He took him 20 years to write his, his book-length poem. And I kept telling him for 20 years, just just publish the thing. Like, just get it out there. Just, and then he won the prize Americana, so I was completely wrong. He needed that much revision. Uh, so, so, but we did this together, and I, I thought it was going to take us half a year, and it took us seven, because Grant said, no, let's slow down. So, okay, but that, that's great. I'm, he's right. Um, and th these are all historical flash fiction pieces that happen just outside of, of the, the, the range of a textbook. And it's, uh, this is volume one, so I'm hoping to get up to volume 1,000 uh, a few years after I'm dead. Um, this is when Rachel sleeps. When Rachel sleeps, stretch across the entire backseat of the car, she dreams of the tattoo on her father's arm, the numbers in their neat row that she has seen only once. He always wears long sleeves, even on hot days, even here in, in the Miracle Mile. When she sleeps, she goes to that secret place where her father says her brother and grandparents are waiting for her. She dreams of, of her real name, the one that changed when they moved to this country. She wakes up when the car stops. Her father gathers up, her up in his arms, and she smiles to herself that she is part of this family that keeps so many things unseen. It's like she's special. It's like she knows where the magician has hidden the dove. That's a weepy one. Uh, let's move away from the weepy ones. I made my wife cry on the way in. Read that one. Uh, for good reasons. Uh, like <laughs> this is uh, Coltrane on the Great Western Divide. Coltrane starts to play in my head as I cross over the falls coming off Crespus Lake. Up here, too high for even frogs, and no trees, and nothing that moves that I can see, except for the little saffron spiral bugs who live in this water that fade from clear to blue to green. And Coltrane is blowing in my head as the winds are blowing in my ears, and I can barely breathe up here. In my early morning trot up this mountain is down to a plod, and I climb out of the bowl of lake up the, the other side to the space called Kawea Gap, this low spot on the Great Western Divide, and look on one side at the Paternoster Lakes I've just climbed out of, and on the other side down the broad arroyo, down those little rings of foxtail pines here and there scattered on a world of brown grass until they reach into the lodgepole forest, somewhere a mile below me. And then I realize what's been playing in my he head all this morning, and Coltrane's there singing to me alone, because I'm only, the only one uh, in this wide world except for those little Buddhist monks, uh, bugs, sat, uh, dancing to his sax in the water, and he singed that part of the song, a love supreme, a love supreme, a love supreme, over and over, and he's right, and I know just exactly what he means. Okay, so this is, uh, uh, this is uh, after Juan Felipe Herrera. Nine, nine, ways to locate yourself, the, ah, nine ways to locate the ghost of yourself in the high Sierra. One, press the ear to the trunk, your ear to the trunk, the loggers, their mad, drunken songs. Two, lightning storm, sugar pine, your head upturned, your mouth a fat bull. Three, a girl curls into the gap, burned into a sequoia tree the way a bird sleeps a nest. Four, 
Translucent shrimp haunt the caves beneath your souls. Shout to them as you pass. Five, locate the tree line by following the pika's chirp. Six, fire season and the smoke chokes your cough. Now the forest is in you too. Eight, what happened to seven? He wandered too close to the river, swept into the everlasting. <laughs> Nine, a turkey vulture's wobbling balance on the air. Last night's dinner still steams his mouth. These little things. I had a student who, uh, I started taking him to, to readings, and he, he thought that these were inspirational notes that I put into myself, in for myself. You know, keep going. You're doing great. You know. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a bad idea. <laughs> it really isn't. <laughs> this is Alta Peak. This year, I was the last person to hike up to the peak. I came down on a Tuesday, and it filled with snow on a Wednesday. And that summer world is gone for nine months of ice. Up there, it's winter most of the year, a winter that no one will, will ever know because it's too steep and too high and the foxtail pines stand lonely for thousands of years in their secret world. I think about that cave up above the trail that I climbed to and was tempted to enter. It was maybe four feet high and the blackness just past the opening looked deep somehow, and maybe it was. If I were a different kind of person, I would have crossed into it. But I thought about Plato, and I didn't want to be chained up, and also there might be a mountain lion, and then I was sure one was watching me, even though I don't think they like caves. Uh, but once an idea like that is in my head, it's stuck. And I imagine a giant cavern system where I'd be chained toward a wall, and pumas would stalk behind me throwing shade. That whole world, invisible world of my mind is buried in six feet of snow now. And that cave, which is unknowable, is even more so in the high altitude winter that begins this, sep this year in September. And that is the beauty of everything, isn't it? Dreams of, deep, of the deep caves of this world are, are as real and as accurate as my imagination of what, I've, what, of, of what life among the foxtails must be right now. It's all one thing now, and it will stay that way until summer. Okay. This is uh, just after dawn, Wolverton Camp. If you come up with us uh, to Sequoia, you'll be staying at Wolverton Camp, which is fantastic. If you know that Sequoia, it's about uh, half a mile from the giant Sherman tree. It's the, only, it's the only one that's kind of in the giant forest, and we get it all to ourselves. So, haha, <laughs> take that. <laughs> just after dawn, Wolverton Camp. I drank too much last night, laughed too much, ate more than was good for me. I do that often, we all do. And this morning, my eyes are bright with dawn, and I'm blowing steam, stomping like a horse who hates the long wait in his paddock. No one's moving, so I take my hangover, my, my garbage sack belly, and trudge with, without even a pack up the side of the mountain, puffing because of yesterday and 46 years of nights like that. And there's never been a morning like this one. I am alone unless you count raccoons, scrub jay, deer, and the whole cast, just me sweating last night's sin, just me walking where I've never been, going home.
Have you ever wondered why people live in the desert? I'm Dawn Davis, and I host Desert Lady Diaries podcast. It's a weekly conversation with women who found their home in the Mojave Desert. Each week, I talk to women who were either born and raised in the desert or felt called to come here and what the desert means to them. You can learn more about the podcast and listen at DesertLadyDiaries.com. Should I read a poem or a story next? Mr. Pembroke or something else? What do you feel like? Story? Let's do a story. Okay. This one is, is uh, uh, what happens if, you, if you're not mindful. This is depressing as crap. Uh, it's called uh, the California Water War. You know the California Water War? Uh, it was uh, Mulholland tried to bring, did bring water from the Owens Valley, and the local farmers uh, protested because they had just recently stolen that water from the natives who lived there, and they fa- found it uh, offensive that someone <laughs> would st- steal it from them. Uh, okay. So they. There, there was a lot of dynamiting and, and that sort of thing. Very few people died in it, but um, it, was, it, was, it was sort of passive violence. The California Water War. While his brother Felix is taking one last look across the valley to make sure no one is near, Guillermo lights the fuse and drops the stick of dynamite into the aqueduct. Let's go, Guillermo says, and he tries to hide a smile as Felix figures out what he's done. When he does, Felix says, hey, it was my turn. Felix is right, of course, but what can he do? The fuse has been lit and the stick has been dropped. Now they need to run, like the white man who gave them the explosives said to. The man who had the idea that maybe little explosions could do as much as the big explosions the ranchers did last year. They're a good half mile away out into the scrub when the thud comes echoing out to them, and they dive behind a bush just like the man told them to. You lit the, the last one, and Felix got Dolores. That's what Guillermo wants to say. But he just shrugs as best he can, lying on his stomach. Sorry, next time. They lie there, wait, watching for 15 minutes to make sure no one heard and no one will come. The man said 30, but after 15, Guillermo starts to stand. Before he can get all the way up, Felix grabs his wrist and pulls him back to the dirt. Stay down. And Guillermo is going to thrash him, but he's pointing across the valley to a cowboy, trotting toward where the, the explosion was. The cowboy is scanning the desert, looking for people. The cowboy has a rifle. Is he alone? But Felix doesn't answer. The cowboy walks to the spot where they drop the stick and stares at it. After a minute, his head snaps up as though he heard something. He raises the rifle and shoots into the scrub, but it's nowhere near Guillermo and his brother. They stare at him silently until he turns back to them. Dolores is pregnant, Felix says. Guillermo almost says, do you think it's yours? Then he almost says, well, then she's a whore. Then his rage vibrates through his brain until it knocks his ideas loose, and all he can do is stare at the sandy dirt in front of his face and breathe. When he comes back to himself, he says, when are you going to get married? Tuesday. You're the best ma- you'll be the best man. This is a brother's order, not a question. Guillermo lets the rage come and go again. He thinks about standing up and walking toward the cowboy. He will walk within rifle range and stand until he's shot down. He thinks about offering his death up for his brother so no one will hunt for Felix. There's a chance now that the cowboy will form a posse and they'll both be caught and killed. But if Guillermo offers up life, but not if Guillermo offers up his life right now. He thinks about Felix's wedding on Tuesday. They would have to delay it for Guillermo's funeral. And when people make speeches at the wedding, they would be about Guillermo and his courage. Dolores would think about him and Felix would cry. And everyone would know that she should have chosen him over his coward brother. Instead of standing there, he gets up on his hands and knees, and he hears Felix start to follow him. He wonders how far they'll have to travel like this before they can finally stand and walk like men. 
It will be miles, he thinks. Many, many miles. You want, you want a poem? You want a story? You want to see I can... <laughs> no, I'm not going to mind. But I will, oh, two more. That's the uh, the dance from one of that movie. Ali Sheedy did this. <laughs> Sandra Who? No, I'm not going to say that. I feel like Sandra. Nah. Oh, that's good. How about the, you want the Zoot Suit Riots or do you want the bo bombing of Golita? Zoot Suit Riots, okay. Uh, Zoot Suit Riots. Magdalena never goes inside the movie house because she does not speak enough English to dream these fantasies, but she loves to stop and look at po the posters. Today she stares at the, into the joyous face of Bernadette, dressed plainly but caught in a vision of heaven. When the soldiers who will be fighting Japanese soon begin to pull the men out, out of the front door of the theater. She is lost in her dreams of the saint, and she stands there dumbly for a moment until she is caught inside their flood. In the time it takes to snap back into this world, they have begun to, to beat brown people, and she stands looking helplessly for a place to run. She would scream, uh, but she has her, her vision of Bernadette, this woman who brought water and peace to her people, who brought the virgin. And she knows that it is, that it is her place to co confront their anger with the love of a saint. Love fills her even as the Anglo men in uniforms begin to tear her clothes, as they scream words she will never know, as she feels the first thought in the temple of her body. So I don't know if you know what the Zoot Suit si riots were in Los Angeles, but sailors pulled uh, Hispanic people out and beat them in the streets. So less a riot, more, I don't know what that is. Um, uh, okay, let's do it. Just meanness, yeah, absolutely. Um. Uh, uh, okay. Several miracles of the High Sierra. One of the miracles of the High Sierra being, on average, that these trees birth only, only one other full-grown pine or fir. Otherwise, the forest would stack itself into crazy, itself wood crazy inward, or grow outward to the sea. One of the miracles being that we stand on granite that once flowed as magma, and, and though we cannot walk on water, standing on beetle rock feels sacred enough. One of the miracles being the glaciers that cut these mountainsides. One of the miracles being that giant sequoias often sprout from nurse trees in a line, and when I see monarchs in a row, I am seeing the shadow of a tree that fell 2,000 years ago. One of the miracles being that the moment I stand on Alta Peak and look down at the cloud below, one of the miracles being that once I enter the forest, I am the forest. And the, me the memories and fears and joys I bring are the forest as well. One of the miracles being wasp lar larvae that gestate inside manzanita berries. One of the miracles being this moment when all of this is briefly here right now, as it is in this moment of forever. I'm going to read just a few more. I think maybe two poems and one story, you think? Okay. Uh, maybe I'll do a Mr. Pembroke. I like Mr. Pembroke. He's so sad. Uh, okay, this is this afternoon hiking up to Ranger Lake. Do you know what a catkin is? It's the, it's the seed on a, um, it's the, basically the sperm of, of a pine tree, and it reaches a certain heat, and it explodes all at once, and suddenly the green is, is uh, uh, the tree is enveloped in this, this green sh sort of shade that 
uh, flows to the next tree to pollinate it. It's just really absolutely beautiful. And if you're there on the right day when the finally is rising, it's like going on all over the place if you're watching for it. Today we discover all the forest catkins are set to burn their green swirling dust into a wind dance. We watch the trees lust into the late autumn, the late warm day to sunset when the bears come down out of the highlands where they've been tearing up logs searching for termites. This day has been waiting for us our whole lives, lives longer even, and now that it's, it, that it's here we miss it so much. Miss the marten in the pine branch napping and the elaborate dance of flies and sunshine and who knows what else. Let's stop and sit in the shade that only seems to be slow moving, that only seems to be slow moving to chat perfect nothing in this moment of time. Meditation on Little Baldy. So many of your days conspire against you to churn gastric acid that could burn its way through granite if it were not trapped in your body inside of you, letting you know that the world is winning, that life is winning, and you are not even a close second. That's a lot of days, Tuesday evenings in particular, when hope seems so far off and there are no markers to let you know that anything will ever change. But up here, with this far off view of giant sequoias below you, you know that's a lie. You know how few truths there are in this world, things like air and water and this rock beneath your boots, and this woman who has hiked all this way up here with you. That look on her face as she watches the world below, that's true. This moment is true too, this sunlight, this scent, this earth. Let's do, let's do one more poem. Am I good with, I'm sorry, one more story. Am I good with one more? Do I have time? Yeah, you're in charge. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's true. But I have, I have a very tenuous relationship with it. Uh, <laughs> this is, uh, uh, so Mr. Pembroke starts to date in his, his search for, for happiness, and uh, this is called uh, Mr. Pembroke's Good Jesus. <laughs> it's the kind of day good Jesus, I'm sorry, it's the kind of good day Jesus would have loved which is the name Mr. Pembroke gave to the Messiah he followed when he was still going to church, and that Christ would have fit right in with these kids squealing after each other, and parents on blanket, and Mr. Pembroke walking next to Jacqueline on their first date, and his first date in about 15 years, and her first date since she left her husband after he hit her, and Mr. Pembroke is pushing 60 and doesn't know how to date any longer, but she says this is nice and kisses him on the cheek. And good Jesus would love the warm river of endorphins running through the middle part of his chest. And Jacqueline says that after 22 years, an angry man emerged from the husk of her husband. And Mr. Prembrook thinks about all those kids he taught, and how many of them had violent fathers and boyfriends, and how he'd report them and nothing happened. And he tells her, her that the world is awful, but this is a good place. And he tells her about good Jesus. And she says that she doesn't believe in good Jesus, only angry Jesus, which is why she stopped going to church. And he says, days like these are his religion. And she says, yes, a day like this is when you can forget uh, that you'll never know what's inside everyone you ne you've ever known and loved. And when you can forget that you're, that you're all alone in the void. And then you can just have an apple and some cheese with a nice man and a blanket. And that's a re religion to worship. And he says, this place has become my good Jesus. And she smiles and says, yes. So, okay, thank you. Thank you very much.
I'm going to tell you what's on my mind because if I do that, uh, I have a p title for a poem, thanks to you. It's called 18 Pigeons Watching John Grantingham Read. <laughs> what, what fascinated me was you started talking religion and they all took off, man. <laughs> They're gone. <laughs> so. This is interesting, so now, now i got a deeper thing to go in my poem. All right, thank you. Thank you to John. Everybody clap for John. He's going to be around for four hours signing books, so take out your checkbook and, and get up here and, and buy his, his brand new book, Mr. Pembroke. And if you haven't bought the Sierra book yet, that's another cool one. And the continuum, how old is that? Yeah, I, I remember it was like, whoa, this guy's writing a million books a week. <laughs> That's cool. So thank you for coming, and see you next month, the 17th yes. of November at 3 o'clock.